Hello ninjas and ninjas and welcome to another episode of the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. My name is Tim Cameron Kitchen, Head Ninja at Exposure Ninja and best-selling digital marketing author. In this episode, I talk with Pascal Culverhouse, who is actually an SEO client of Exposure Ninjas and runs an e-cigarette e-commerce company called Electric Tobacconist. Now, Electric Tobacconist is the UK's top-ranked site in this market, and it's pretty dominant. So we wanted to get Pascal onto the show to take us behind the scenes of ET's incredible growth and talk us through his approach to SEO, which has been responsible for that growth both in the UK and in the US. And one thing to note about the e-cigarette market is because you can't do any paid advertising, every single business in this market is purely focused on SEO. So so to have the dominance that ET has in, in such a competitive market is very, very rare. And Pascal's super bright and has as much of a hold on this market as I've seen anyone have. And we've worked with some pretty dominant businesses over the years, so I think you'll really enjoy what he's got to say. And remember, if you want to find out how to improve your own visibility to the level that Pascal has, then you need to request your free SEO and marketing plan from Exposure Ninja by going to www.exposureninja.com forward slash review. Anyway, sit back and enjoy. Pascal, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So maybe for people who haven't heard of you and and don't know Electric Tobacconist, how did you first get started in e-commerce? Well, I uh, left a job I was in in 2009 to go and work in the family business. Uh, I always knew I wanted to end up working for myself. So that seemed like the obvious route to go and work in a family business where I could perhaps get a bit more bit more freedom, a bit more leeway. Uh, my, my father owns a company called Fantastic Fireworks, which has been going since 1985. And uh, the first thing he did was put me in charge of his retail arm. Um, and I looked at his website that I was told to look after and uh, noticed he didn't get much traffic, hardly any sales, so like £15,000 a year or something. And I thought, okay, well, that could be an easy place to sort of make my mark because it's not very hard to get sort of £1,000 worth of sales a month and and start bringing some money. So I had a look, uh, contacted Google about doing some Google ads, uh, immediately found you couldn't do any ads. So I thought, okay, how do I get traffic to this site then? Started reading some books, realized that something called SEO was quite important. SEO being search engine optimization. Read a book about it, seemed quite interesting, um, seemed quite actually not that hard to get my head around. So uh started doing it, seemed to get a bit of luck got a bit up the Google rankings and started to get more and more traffic to the site and got more and more passionate about selling online. And then an opportunity came up, which uh, changed changed my life, changed the course of my career and my life. So what exactly happened with that? That was the supplier who came in and, and asked you about e-cigarettes, right? Yes. Um, there was a supplier. He mentioned that he was bringing over a big container of e-cigarettes and he asked me who made my fireworks website because he thought it looked really nice and I thought "Mm, I'm not going to tell you tell you what I'll buy some e-cigarettes off you and I'll sell them he actually didn't mind that because he he wasn't particularly into websites he was just like buying and selling stuff this person sold me my first ever e-cigarettes and I put them on a website um and you could say the rest is history what is an interesting aside to that by the way is this guy is the son of the person who first sold my dad fireworks in 1985 so the same family had set have set both uh, my father and me up in business. Great family. <laughs> yeah, still in touch with them. Lovely people. So what year was it that you made the move into e-cigarettes and electric tobacconist? 
Uh, so I was running the sites uh, from about 20, 2009, and then we got to 2013 when I had the meeting. 12 weeks later, I launched the website. I always remember that. 12 weeks, got it going. Just like, just get on with it, I thought. So we did that. And that was in um, so July. And then we had November the 5th. So I, I, I worked a little bit on the site. Um, it, it slowly trickled in. And then I had November the 5th. So I had to cover that. And I knew that for, after that, I would probably be looking to transition because I could see the business was hotting up. We took uh, 800 orders in the first six months of Electric Tobacconist, and we took 8,000 orders in the second six months. So you can imagine after about five months, I was like, yeah, this is kicking off now. So I spoke to my father after November the 5th and said, hey, we got the busy season out of the way. How about I concentrate on this? So he, being a shareholder of Electric Tobacconist, was happy for me to go off and, and do that full time because we knew that the, the potential was far larger than, than it could be at a fireworks business, which is so seasonal. Really interesting about both fireworks and electric cigarettes is that you can't run any Google ads. So everything is like SEO. In fact, you can't run any Facebook ads. In fact, most paid ads are completely out of the question. So did that put you off that the entire market was going to be focused on SEO and you were going to be really competitive in this space? I suppose it could have put me off. Uh, I never really thought of it like that. I'd, I'd started doing the SEO for the fireworks websites and I realized that uh, I could get to the top of the searches with that, with no outside help. So although it's a smaller industry, I actually had some confidence. I, I managed in the space of like six months just to get some stuff up, some terms that I put my mind to, get on the first page, get up towards the top, and some of them actually to the very top of the searches. So when I realized you couldn't do Google ads, I thought, hang on, this is the perfect business for me because everyone's going to be a bit wet, wet behind the ears. We're not going to get e-cigarette vaping SEO gurus coming in, we're going to get people who are in the right place at the right time who aren't necessarily going to know how to run a website or how to how to run SEO. So no, I, I thought about it in a completely different way and thought, no, this is perfect for me. And I actually remember about a year before this thinking fireworks is good to sell online and I'm getting, I'm getting quite into the SEO. In fact, it can't have been a year before, but a few months before. And I remember going on the Google restricted products page to see if there were any other businesses that I could set up. <laughs> promise you 100 uh, percent are there any other businesses i could set up that that don't allow ads and so i looked through the listings it was like pornography um, fireworks gun guns and stuff like that and so i actually they, they, at this time vaping wasn't known but there was tobacco but not not uh, electronic cigarettes so yeah i i searched so i in a way it you know the business the industry found me in a way it's like warren buffett's thing when others are being fearful you get greedy <laughs> So you were in fireworks and then over to e-cigarettes. Were either of those things real passion plays for you? Because when many people are deciding which business to go in, they look at what they're passionate in, they look at what they enjoy, and then they try to kind of make a business around that enjoyment. Is that the approach you take, you took, or what were your criteria for choosing these markers? Interesting question. Uh, I, I don't actually believe that going after an industry that you're incredibly passionate about is always a, a strength. I was incredibly passionate about selling online, but I've been incredibly dispassionate at times about what I what I sell online. I've actually grown to love e-cigarettes. I find them really quite pleasurable things to do. Of course, I didn't vape before I started the business because no one did. But what I find is that as time's gone on, I'm not as into it as most of my, my employees. So I, there's a bit of a running joke that I don't really know anything about the industry, which of course isn't true because... A lot of my staff are reading blogs constantly and really up with the game when so I have to sort of step back and run the website rather than the products. Uh, and I find that with a new industry, 
you can get a bit too into it and not realize that you're blinding people with science and blinding your potential customers with with your advanced levels of knowledge. So in vaping, there's something called sub-ohm vaping. And there are other things that even the terms, Tim, I don't know if you vape, but probably don't mean anything to you. And what we need to be mindful of when we're selling online is that you, you're going to often have what we call Aunt Bessies coming on the website who want to vape, but don't know what they're doing. So we mustn't assume they know anything. So when you ask, did we do, do you feel that you need to have a passion? Yes, I have a huge passion for search engine optimization. I have a huge passion for e-commerce, the stuff that has to go into your thought processes to make a website work. And I, I find the vaping industry interesting, but I think if I were to get too into it, I think I'd be my own worst enemy. Hope I'm making sense with what I'm saying, Tim. Yeah, I completely agree. I recorded a video today saying basically exactly that, like passion is not generally a good criteria for market selection, right? It should be, what does the market need? Where are the problems that aren't being solved properly? And actually kind of looking at you and your interests and your likes is that that's not criteria for making a good business, is it? And I think what you said is is really interesting of how it can actually help to give you a bit more affinity with your target customer if you're not already a complete geek and a complete expert in that situation because you're much closer to to where your customers are and then of course the the employees and the team bring in a lot of expertise i guess another thing is once you get to running a company of a certain size basically all companies are are, are very similar really and, and actually the success of the business has very little to do with the the owner's uh, core ability or, or core knowledge around the around the thing that they're selling it's um yeah, it's quite, it's quite counter to the whole do what you love and it never feel like work thing though, isn't it? Very much so. I think I took inspiration from working in the family business where I saw my father growing one of the largest fireworks businesses in the UK. And he's not, fireworks and e-cigarettes do share an interesting parallel in that the types of people who are into them are really, really into them to the point where they talk about little else. So we had a lot of fireworks pyro geeks, as we call them, around the office. So you used to pop in just for a cup of tea and talk fireworks with the people in the office. We had a lot of uh, freelance firers who helped us at weekends, had about 150 of them on the books. So we had people, anoraks, my, my father calls them, not if I was supposed to say that, but he, I noticed that he, he had all these people around him who were really, really respected him as a, a bit of a giant in the fireworks industry in the UK. He's, he likes fireworks. He goes to watch them all the time and he used to drag me but he doesn't talk about them in the way that these the anoraks do. He he talks about them much more in a business sense. And you get the feeling that he could have probably started any other business. So I, I perhaps took inspiration that you don't have to be that into it in order to make a success of it. In fact, and as time gone, has gone on, I've realized that actually you need to be a little bit detached from what you're selling at times because you're, you're unable to see it from a new customer point of view if you ex- make too many expectations of their knowledge levels. In fact, you should make absolute zero expectation levels on, on what they what your new customers might or might not know. It feels like people are more comfortable with that concept at a large company level, right? Richard Branson is not expected to be an expert on aviation necessarily. People don't expect that of him. They just know him as someone who's familiar and they kind of trust and like him. Whereas when you're starting a company, people just assume that you need to be, you know, super, super into it. So it's I guess it's this curious kind of uh, double think that seems to prevail around whether the, you know, it's just... I was challenged by my first ever office employee. He, he, he turned to me maybe a couple of months into his ET career and he said, 
you don't actually know that much about vaping. Do you not think you should know more? And I said, well, actually, I think it's your job to know it. And I'm, I'm watching you learn it and I can see that you really like it, but it's, and yes, it would be beneficial if I could learn it by osmosis, which I will. But for me to go out and spend more time learning about the nuances of what vapor does when it hits the air than learning how to make a new potential vapor, visit my website and convert the purchase from a business point of view, it's going to be much more important to me for me to concentrate on the latter. Exactly right. Your business, your your job is to market and build a company that sell e-cigarettes, not to be the e-cigarette guy. That's, Can that's I just exactly. state, by the way, Tim, that I do know more about vaping than 99% of the population. Yeah. But you would, perhaps people would expect me to know even more than that. Yeah. So give us a sense of the scale of Electric Tobacconist, where you are today, what's your visibility like, and where do you guys see yourselves in the market? Well, we have uh, ET UK and ET USA. So uh, ET USA started two years ago and had a very, very sluggish start to the point where various times I thought about pulling the plug, but just carried on out of I don't know why, how. ET UK should do about, this calendar year, should do about £5 million turnover. Uh, ET US did $500,000 last year. And believe it or not, we're forecasting $5 million this year. Boom. <laughs> yeah, it did $5,000 in January 2016 and $150,000 of revenue in the December 2016. So you can see that it was ramping up and it has continued to do so. So I'm getting a real in- insight into American business, despite having only visited my office once over there, where I have, I think, 10 or 11 employees now. I've got a business partner over there who, who runs everything and you can with it I run pretty much the SEO from this side and a lot of the e-commerce but I've found that you can just do it all on Skype and Slack Messenger email and uh, you don't always have to visit when you've got a good guy in charge uh, so yeah I think hopefully globally about well five million pounds and five million dollars doesn't make 10 million pounds or dollars but you know what I mean yeah yeah okay so okay 5k in January 2016 150k in December what did you do between January and December? Everybody wants to know. Interesting question. I don't know if this is a, a one size fits all thing about American business, but here's what I think. We all run, well, you and I run UK businesses where we're a small country on a small island. Yes, we've got quite a few people, but really we're nowhere near the scale of America. So actually we have to bust a gut to make things work. Now, if you can take that over to America, once you get any traction, from what I can see, it's like a boulder rolling down the hill it absolutely catches fire. And you don't actually have to be any cleverer than you were over here, but you just have to fight as hard and you'll find that it goes miles further. Tim, you're a cricket fan. There are some cricket grounds in the world where you hit the ball and the ground is so high off the ground, like in, is it one in South Africa? I can't remember. Is it the the, the one where all the records were always broken? And every time right. I hit the ball, it goes for six out of the ground because the air is so thin. Well, it, to me, it's a bit like that in America. Once you get it going... Once you start to get 5,000 people on the site in a month, you know you can do 10,000. Once you do 10,000, you know you can do 20. Whereas in the UK, we're sort of capped because we only got 63 million people. They've got, I should know this, 200 million people, something like that, 250, 300 million population in America. They've also got 10 times the number of vapors. So whereas we naturally start to slow down our growth in the UK when we start to hit, you know, several thousand, hundreds of thousands of visitors, there doesn't seem to be a ceiling in the US. So once you get it going, this would be my advice to anyone who's looking to set something like this up in the US. If you can get it off the ground and you fight with everything you can to get it off the ground, there really is no end to what you can achieve over there. I, I 
I read up a lot about American businesses, e-commerce businesses, and some of the turnovers of like unheard of businesses are just astronomical. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of turnover and no one's ever heard of them. Maybe it's because we're British, but I, I do think the potential over there, if you can get things going, is much, much greater. Well, it, it obviously is because there's just more people. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. When you look at search volumes, UK versus US, it's just differently. I love it. Yeah, that, this is why I think when for six months, I just couldn't get anyone on the site. SEO wise, Google wasn't interested. Google was sending us no traffic. And I couldn't even get like 10, 20 people in a, in a day was a success, even like four months after the project started. We're now getting over 100,000 a month on the site. And what were we doing? I, I came out with this stat the other day. This month's going to do about 110,000 people on the site. In December, I think it was 30,000. So, you, you know, wow. this is like just three or four months on. And so I don't know where this is going to end up, but it's pretty exciting. That's awesome. I, I want to ask you about the kind of split between, you know, the, the SEO stuff that, that we do for you and the SEO stuff, which you do yourself and you're super involved and super switched on with SEO. Why, for someone who's so switched on, do you still use an agency like us to do this stuff? Why don't you just do it all yourselves? I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, Tim, but I think an agency can only go so far. I think you have the person who, somebody in charge of the website has to just do the final bit. And so I see an agency's role as to do, to, to work on the authority of a website. Agencies are generally good or yours is particularly good at outreach. And it's our job just to tweak the pages and say, hey, Google, you know, you're looking for this kind of product. This, we've got it here. And, and just basically just label the pages properly. And it's your job to make the site look good. Um, I good look good in Google's eyes. Uh, mm. I, if, if you'll allow me, I have an analogy that I have to, I have to, because we're so, we're so strong on SEO. We're so uh, linked in with SEO to get people on both of our websites. I often have to explain to my staff why we do things and why not to do certain things. And I have to explain little uh, bits of SEO to people. And we have silly little rules. Like earlier, we checked our ranking on something and then, uh, my graphic designer, Ben, just Googled to see where we were ranking on a certain random term that wasn't particularly important, but we were interested. And we we actually, we just launched this product and we were ranking like number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And, and Ben clicked, somebody else was ranking at 10 and he wanted to see how they presented the page. So he clicked on it and I was like, whoa, 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 don't ever, ever do that. Now this <laughs> is even a, it's not even a particularly important SEO rule, but I was like, don't show Google that you're, in, you're not interested in the listings above it and clicking on a competitor's. That's just silly. Anyway, so I ha sometimes have to just explain to the staff why we do things. And one of the easiest ways to explain why we use the agency, why SEO is important, and why, how we get to the top of searches often. Off-page SEO, which is how your website looks to Google. Google's going to look at you, look you up and down. Have you got nice shoes? Do you look good? You know, are you well presented? But then if you don't tell Google what your pages actually do, how can it possibly rank you for anything? So when I say that's what you call the on-page, and you know that's called the on-page, the on-page SEO is what you might, what you say to somebody in order to, for them to find you attractive once they've decided that you look good. So the reason we use an agency is because you guys make us look good, and then it's up to us to, to provide the conversation that Google might then decide, yeah, okay, I'll rank you for that, that page for that, that page for that, and that page for that. But if I don't tell Google... The other one is that I might be selling fluffy dice online and you guys might do an amazing job of outreach. We might have authority. We might have links from all the best websites, New York Times, BBC, The Guardian, every link you can think of from all the greatest sources. And then on my fluffy dice page, 
I might spell fluffy dice wrong. Google's going to go into that and say, look, you, you can't even spell. I'm not ranking you for anything. And then the website owner will come back to you and say, Tim, I've, I've hardly got any competition, but I'm not even on the first page for the term fluffy dice. And yeah. it's, sorry, mate, that's not, that's not Tim Kitchen's job. Tim Kitchen's job is to make you look good. You've got to, sp- you've got to spell fluffy dice right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously, because we work with with clients where we do their on site SEO as well, I have to give the uh, the other side of that, which should also be so some people, they don't have your inclination or your desire to learn about SEO. So oh, if I could, I should I should caveat for the sake of your agency, Tim, when when your guys came in, I said, don't touch my website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll do that. Yeah, because then it becomes, you know, I, I don't know, you, you lose, I, from my point of view, I am a control freak in terms of the website. Don't, you know, you're out, you're, you're outside, do, do the off page, I'll do the on page. And that's been an agreement. That, that's been something that's worked absolutely, unbelievably well for us. When we started working with you, we were big on all the long tail searches, but the two big ones that I said to you at the start, can't seem to get any traction on e-cigarette and e-liquid the two singular phrases the two biggest phrases in the industry i think what was it eight weeks i sent you an email i said tim we're on the first page for both and um, yep. i can't i can't claim that was me so uh yeah it's worked well we're like we're like um is it bernie talking and elton john you know we chime yeah in. yeah so all right that, and i think your attitude to seo is is from a agency's point of view it's so good to have someone who is that switched on to SEO inside the business. Oh, I always thought it was annoying. No, no, it's 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 amazing because we don't have to we don't have to sell you on the idea of you know links are good, and we don't have to sell you on the idea of it's important to include the the word fluffy dice and make sure that it's spelt correctly. <laughs> for, for some people who don't understand or or who don't value SEO as much, there's a there's a lot of fights over things that seem very very I don't say fights it's not not, not aggressive but <laughs> there's a lot of discussion around things that would uh, that are very obvious to you so it's it's great to have someone who's as engaged and luckily with the, with the podcast and all our lovely listeners everyone's switched on to SEO uh, and I don't want this to be a how did you find us and why should people choose us for SEO but for people who are listening who are thinking about help getting some help with with some SEO it's an absolute minefield, as as you know, and w- we know the industry is a complete swamp. There are other good op- options out there. I'm not saying you only can choose SEO, but how did you guys find uh, an SEO company to work with? How do you suggest people go about this process? I think there's two ways you can find an SEO agency. The first way is you might just find one. You might get recommended and you might get lucky. I'm sure there's quite a few good agencies out there. And I know for a fact that there are some terrible, terrible agencies out there. They're not even agencies. They're just one man bands. Uh, I used one once. Uh, this person charged me 500 pounds. Not me. This is in the early days with Fantastic Fireworks. And I got spoken a load of BS. Uh, they sent me, I mean, they did me a favor in a way because they sent me uh, an Excel sheet with all the keyword terms that we were ranking for and then our new rankings and that was it. No, I've done this. I've done that. Just a list of key terms that I hadn't even asked for. Uh, it was like six of them as well. A, a ranking from like two months ago and then a new ranking. And I already knew that that wasn't our ranking originally. And that isn't our ranking now. So I just thought, right, well, we've been done for 500 quid. But in a way, it did me a favor because I thought, right, well, SEO, you can I could, clearly you, it's a minefield, as you said, but it shouldn't be. So I went out and bought a book. Sorry, Tim, it's not your one. That came later. 
Uh, oh, what? I bought a book called 50 Ways to Make Google Love Your Website. Now, this hasn't been updated in a number of years, unfortunately, because it's very, very good. But I think it would be a bit outdated now. But at the time, uh, I read it and, I th- and it really made it quite easy for me to understand. And I thought, mm, do you know what? It's actually 250 pages. It was a bit of a slog. I'm going to say a slog. It was quite a good read. It made it really quite fun. And I thought, that's not actually that hard. So the next time anyone spoke to me about SEO, I was able to sort of tell the difference between someone who was talking rubbish and someone who was actually knew what they were talking about. But actually, this reading that book led me on to reading The Art of SEO. I don't know if you've read that one, the big green textbook style one. Yep. That is hard. I think I only got halfway through it. I've still got a bookmark in it. I've got it in front of me here. Uh, I only got halfway through it, but that was like, that's hardcore. But in doing so and reading several blogs and following everyone to do with SEO on Twitter, I realized that you can get into it. It's not that hard. It doesn't, I'm not, I didn't spend like three years on this. I'm talking like three months of properly getting into it. So to go back to your question, I don't really think you can correctly select the right agency for you unless you actually know what you're doing. Do you have to ask yourself how important is SEO to you? Because if it's even, you know, even if it has the potential for 20% of your revenue or to send 20% of traffic to your website, then you've got to do it yourself. I think you've got to know, you've got to take yourself to a certain point before you can then select the right person to work with, or you've just got to hope you just got to get lucky and get the right agency by pure luck. And maybe, maybe it isn't just pure luck. Maybe someone can point you in the right direction. Who knows? Or maybe you can listen to this podcast and find out. But if you're listening to this podcast, in a way, you are doing some research into SEO. So why not go that sort of extra distance and just learn a little bit? It's not as hard as people think. I got very, very bad grades at school. And yet I can get my head around SEO. Yeah, we, we say people need to know enough to know if they're getting good work or bad work or, you know, at the start of the thing, they need to know enough to know whether they're hearing bullshit from someone, right? I wasn't going to use that word, but yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I, I think that, that education piece is so important. And people think that, oh, you know, it's just it's just computer stuff. It's just one one element of the business. But actually, you guys are a prime example of a business that's grown so heavily because of SEO. And there is so much potential for people. It's the number one place online that, you know, you could if you could be found anywhere, it would be at the top of Google for your target phrases, right? So from a business perspective, it's up there with hiring the right people it's up there with you know managing properly this is an important business skill that people need to have in 2017 right i mean totally i i grew up with uh the the old the old way of doing it was to get in the yellow pages so perhaps this is where it comes from going again back to the family business but i grew up with a we had a bookshelf in my dad's office that had every single yellow pages in the country in it and in the old days, the way to get to get noticed was to be in the yellow pages. So my father advertised with the biggest fireworks advert in every single yellow pages. I think there was like 150 directories you had all over these shelves. He was quite proud of them as well. So I think I always remembered that from growing up. When it came to SEO, I thought, well, hang on a minute. We've got a chance. If you can get to the top of these searches, then you're, you don't even have to pay for the ad. You're not even paying for anything. It's free traffic. So why wouldn't you get into that? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you learn how to get to the top so you can get free traffic? Who doesn't want free traffic to their website if you're trying to sell something? It's putting yourself in the busiest high street in the history of mankind, isn't it? It's just, yeah. Well, I think that's what people have trouble getting their heads around, that it is a high street. It is a high street. It's You're the top. You you need to think of all these people who, who Google a certain phrase and then think of them as people. Imagine yourself on a high street. 
and imagine them walking past your store. And it's your job to ask them to come into your store by by interesting them. And then if you know what your conversion rate is, you know, let's say you have a 5% conversion rate. Well, if 100 people walk past your store and you walk into your store and you can convert 5%, that's five sales. You have to, A lot of the time you have to picture, on, in the online world, you have to picture how it looks in the offline world. Just imagine it's a shop and then it, it just helps you get your head around it because people forget that e-commerce is still quite new. We haven't really been selling. I mean... I bought my first book online maybe 10 years ago. That's not a long time ago. So in the space of only in the last seven years have people really started to get quite clever about SEO, about selling online and stuff like that. It's a lot newer than people realize. You're not, if you're thinking about starting to learn about this stuff, you're not as far behind as you think. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. Um, I want to ask you about some of your SEO ideas, some some concepts that that you have, because some of these are are pretty original and you know, you, you have the results to, to show you're, you're completely dominant in a market, which is just pure SEO. So maybe you could take us through, uh, through some of your ideas around SEO, which maybe people don't talk about or some ideas which people wouldn't have heard before. I've got quite a few. Uh, some of them probably remain locked up in my special secrets box. But <laughs> I do, we do work a lot on the, on the long tail. So that's not obviously my concept. It's, I believe, Chris Anderson's uh, concept comes from the book, The Long Tail. It's one of those books you don't actually need to read. You just read the title and get the idea. The Long Tail being being that being on top of Google for millions and millions of small phrases is actually more important than being on top of Google for the biggest sort of two or three phrases. So we do a lot of work on that. We call it our money ball theory that it's, it's all about numbers. It's all about showing up in as many Google searches as you can. So our UK, our UK uh, website shows up in Last time I looked, something like 1.5 million searches a month. On the back of that, we know that we will get X number of clicks. And from that, we know we will convert over 10%. So it's all numbers. Uh, so we're, I, love, uh, I love that film Moneyball. In fact, I love the book Moneyball by Michael Lewis. It really got me into the sort of thinking about how you can run a business in a slightly cleverer way than other people. It's not necessarily cleverer, but you like to think you are. My other theory is my mafia analogy. It's another one that I end up talking about around the office to help people understand why we do things. I've got a theory that a lot of SEO is about getting on the first page, but Google's algorithm has to judge you from a long way back. So let's say you start a website and you find yourself for a key term that you want to get on the first page, and you might be on page five or six. You need to hire an agency to help you get the authority for Google to trust you further up the searches. But once you hit the first page, as everyone knows, the difference between the first page and the second page is absolutely monstrous in terms of data that Google can can use on you. There's a joke, where's the best place to bury a dead body on the second page of Google? You're on the second page of Google. Let's say you've got a term that's Googled 10,000 times a month. You might see, of 10,000 people Googling that term, you might see 200 of them go on the second page, which means if you're on the second page of Google, Google's algorithm is trying to work out if you're worthy of a higher position. It can't really use any data. It can't really, it can't really use anything to go by because 200 searches is not going to give it any data to work with. So it can only really judge you properly when you hit the first page. So my theory, I call it the mafia analogy, is once you hit the first page, it uses a whole new number of metrics to judge you on. And I think that's like website performance, how your website just looks, speed of your website, basically how long people stay on the site. Tim, you'll know Rand Fishkin from SEO, what's he called? Moz. From Moz, yeah. Moz. He, he's known as a bit of a guru in the industry. And he did a test on Twitter a few months back 
where he asked a bunch of his followers to, to click on link A and link B. Uh, he asked them to Google a certain phrase. Then he asked everyone, a certain number of people to click on one of the links and a number of people to click on the other links. And he asked batch A to stay on the website for five minutes, literally five minutes and click around and stay on it for ages. And he asked batch B to click on, wait for 10 seconds, click back to Google. And he noticed that he's got so many followers. He noticed, like, I think 20,000 people took part in the test. You could probably look it up and you'll probably find... There's a few inaccuracies in my story. But either way, he completely messed up the Google algorithm. It started the next day, batch A that had much longer, stickier page, i.e. people staying on the site longer, had a much better ranking. The other one was dumped down. Uh, and then eventually it, it, Google's algorithm realized that it was a test or it was a one-off spike in traffic, so it corrected itself. But he was trying to show that really time on site, basically, if your site's sticky, it will go up the rankings. Basically, if your site's good, it will go up the rankings, but you can't really get to first page unless you've got all this authority and the right links and that sort of thing to get you there. So I call it the mafia analogy because it's a bit like the mafia. If To get into the mafia, you've got to have a guy who says, hey, this is little Jimmy. Give him, shall I do my accent? He's like, give him a go. Tim, meet little Jimmy. He's a really good guy. I think you should give him a shot and you're not in the mafia, right? Little Jimmy comes in. He's been vouched for by me, little Terry, big Dave, and tiny P. He gets into the mafia, but then when he gets into the mafia, it's not really what I say about him. It's how many people he kills. It's his, yeah. it's his actual performance. That's a really interesting concept. And I think it's it's one of those that's it's so logical. I was talking to, uh, we were interviewing Marie Haynes earlier this week, and she said something slightly, slightly similar, which again, I haven't heard too much before, that lots of people have links to, to, to their website on various different sites. And she believes, and it's anecdotal, a little, a little bit like yours. It's it's one of those that falls into. It's so logical. It's difficult not to believe it. Where if people are clicking through the link, that is seen as more important than a link which never gets any clicks. And you're like, okay, that makes total sense because then it indicates that it's contextual, indicates that it's valuable, indicates that the site that it, the link is coming from is good quality, that the link is presented in a way that makes. And it's one of those, isn't it, where it's once you hear that and you say, okay, cool. So I know um, Perry Belcher calls it the, uh, he calls it like sandboxing or there's like a dead cat spike where Google will test the site at different positions and, and see how it performs and see if the user metrics justify that position. I can, t- I, can I know, I know like a thousand of our rankings almost off by heart. And I know, I know it tests you. It moves you around. And and sometimes if you see a drop, sometimes that's a good thing because sometimes a cemented ranking means Google's just happy with you there. It will move yeah. you down and move you up and then it will, it will bounce you around. You have to be patient. Um, you said something else just now. Who was the first person you mentioned? Marie Haynes. Yeah, uh, the, the clicking link. If the more, you, um, the more you know about Google, this goes against my other point about just learning the new stuff. I did, after I learned the new stuff, I went back to the beginning and learned and read the books about how Google started. Because if you understand how it started, their mantra is to reference the world's information. And everything they ever do does follow logic. They just want the, their model requires the engine, the search engine to work as well as possible. It's a business. So if everybody went on the search engine, clicked the top search that had been really well tweaked so that it was the top of Google and bounced out because actually the answer wasn't very good, but it had been so well optimized for Google, like by cheating the system. If it, 
that that was the only reason it was up there, then everyone will click out and then they'll go to option two. And then if option two is rubbish as well, then eventually you're probably just going to use a different search engine, Bing, for example. If everybody used Bing instead of Google, then Google doesn't have a business and all this crazy driverless cars and Google Glass and everything goes out the window because they lose all their whole money. They lose all their money from, from AdWords, which is what has been the astronomical success of the whole thing. Everything Google's algorithm wants to achieve is through logic. It wants to have the best possible reference of information in the world. And so it will just rank the best websites it can find. It has to. AdWords is a they released their profit figures for the first quarter. It's like 22 billion per quarter profit from AdWords. Like any data that they possibly have, people are like, oh, I wonder if Google uses information from Chrome and Android. Like how, how much are they going to protect that revenue source, right? They're going to do everything they can, right? So they're going to use every single piece of data they can possibly get. Nothing is going to go unused here. They can't afford for the search engine not to operate as a good search engine. So however much you try and game it, you're never actually going to really succeed that much. Because once you hit the first page, your website has to perform or it's not helping Google's business. In fact, it's detrimental to Google's business. If you cheat the system, get to the top of Google and then your website isn't actually a very good website. So if my website got to the top of Google, which it has for quite a lot of terms, and just didn't perform, it was slow, sluggish, uh, didn't have the products, products were out of stock, prices too high, actually didn't uh, didn't deliver a good service once people bought from it, then in a way I'm screwing Google's Google's whole website. I'm, I'm playing a part in that. And Google can't afford for me to do that. So it can't really afford for websites that don't afford to rank highly, they can't afford for them to rank high. Well, we were talking to a client yesterday whose site had been struggling on page two for a lot of a lot of different keywords and they sped up their hosting. Their site was slow and that was that was the only thing they changed. Of course, as soon as you speed up your site, reduce your bounce rate, increase engagement, increase the number of pages per session, immediately the site's ranking better. No other optimization, no extra content, nothing like that. It's just making that website as user-friendly and increasing the the performance of the site basically giving Google what it needs to say, do you know what, this site deserves to rank. And I think that's a big thing, isn't it? It's just, does this site deserve to rank well? And yeah, that's why you should shop your own site and think, what, what would a customer think? And, and on that point, your conversion rate on your website is freaking insane. I don't know if you want me to tell the numbers, so I'm not going to do it. If you want to do it, then that's cool. But for an e-commerce site to convert at the percentage that yours does is just mental. And we look at a hell of a lot of analytics. So I want to ask you, what has contributed to that success in your opinion? Sometimes if you have slightly more static visitor numbers, it means you've got more of your regulars coming back. So your conversion rate can grow. When you have spikes in traffic or you start to, your SEO is really working, you get more and more traffic. Your conversion rate can dip, but that's not actually a bad thing. It just means you've got more users coming on the site and they're not as used to it. So they're not as likely to buy as your regulars. But our conversion rate's been up. I think it's rubbed at 15% at times when the, when the conversion, when the uh, visitor numbers have plateaued somewhat, but then you might hit January and, and then more and more people will come on, more new people will come on the site and then your conversion rate will drop slightly. Um, what's contributed to it? We are selling e-cigarettes. So people who like vaping, they're not going to not vape. So they they need to come back and buy stuff. And for some reason, the subscription model doesn't seem to work that well in our industry. People don't like to being tied to stuff being sent to them. 
it's a bit like wine. I don't really want the same bottle of Sauvignon Blanc arriving on my doorstep every Sunday. I want to buy my own, whatever, some red, some white, some of this, some, some I've forgotten all wines, but you know what I mean? <laughs> some Merlot, some Chateau Neuf. Uh, you know, here, I, I don't want to be tied. So subscription doesn't work. So people have to come back to the site really to choose their next product. But because they are... We're dealing with an addiction. They are literally addicted to it, and we hope not too much. They do it more out of pleasure. They generally come back. And so we, we've got an advantage, but we do spend a lot of time on this sort of stuff. On top of my SEO geekiness, I'm also a massive sort of checkout abandonment geek, conversion geek, you know, all that sort of stuff. I, I still remember when I was first starting out in this, and I've got it, I've got it next to me again just for reference. The posterity almost. Um, my, I remember going to a party once and somebody said, oh, what's, uh, what have you been up to all weekend? And my wife said, uh, I've been watching my husband read The Science of Shopping Cart Abandonment by Charles Nichols, uh, a research report from the Conversion Academy. And that became a big joke around everyone that Pascal's a loser because all he does at weekends is read The Science of Shopping Cart Abandonment. They ain't laughing now, mate. They ain't <laughs> laughing now. Well, it, the sad thing is it's not actually a book. It was a printout from the, from a website that I printed out and put in its own <laughs> little ring binder. So I made it into a book and then I read it and I've, I can see here that I've got lots of highlighted points. I spend a lot of time shopping the site. I'm on it. At, I get up at 5.45. I'm at my desk with a cup of tea by six every morning. I work with no one, music in my ears, no one to bother me for a good two and a half hours before I get up and have breakfast with the kids every morning. I, I spend hours on this stuff. I just love it. I love looking at the numbers. I love looking at how many people have been on the site. Who hasn't bought? It's all very well saying, you know, you've got a, like a 10% conversion rate. To me, that means 90 in every 100 people haven't bought something. Where have they gone? What do they do? Why didn't they buy something? I need to know. So you might go in the tickets and look at well, who's complaining or who's saying stuff, who's got a problem with the site, checking them and sort of hovering over them. I want to know. We've got a, like a tag in our help desk section that says website improvements, meaning someone's made a complaint that's perfectly reasonable. And then we go in there and we make an improvement. They say, oh, I couldn't find whether this was a pack of two or a pack of three. Well, they should not be writing into the site. That's our fault. We've, we've screwed up there. That needs to be fixed. I'm all over the site constantly. I'm always thinking, what's a layman thinking? I referenced earlier the Aunt Bessie test. We call it the Aunt Bessie. Lots of people call it different things. But the Aunt Bessie test, for those who don't know, is a test. You imagine that your oldest technophobic auntie is on your website. How would she, what would she think? How would she behave on your website? Would she be able to get her head around what to do next? It's all very well selling great products, but if they don't know where your add to basket button is, then God help you. I'm into this stuff. I spend lots and lots of time tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it because it's not just one change that will change things. You have to be making 10, 12, 20 changes a day to make sure that conversion rate, always thinking of conversion rate is a bad thing. You were, you were calling it insane. Well, even if my conversion rate's at 15, that's 85 people out of every 100 who haven't bought something. That's terrible. Imagine that was a real shop. Imagine you ran a news agent. And 100 people walked into your store and only 15 people bought a pack of fags. You'd be absolutely livid. You'd lock the door. You would. Well, you might do, yeah. I mean, we. I don't want to make you feel bad. We've got a site that we built, Legal Lead Gen site, which is converting at 36%. But it's not, it's not an e-commerce. E-commerce, the highest conversion rate I've ever seen is your site. So yeah, I, I think the Aunt Bessie test is fantastic. We use a similar kind of thing, the Homer Simpson test or your mum test. So, you know, very, very similar concepts. We get sent sites that I can't figure out what they do. And it's like, well, I have to say, look, sorry, guys, but 
you know, I spend all day looking at hundreds and hundreds of sites and I can't figure out what you do. So poor old Aunt Bessie, she's not even going to stand a chance, is she? <laughs> what are some of the biggest e-commerce mistakes that you see sites, either your competitors or, or just other sites when you're looking around making? Usually it's the basics. If, if you don't know how a website should be set up, there are some just absolute must-haves on a site. And it's so often you go on a site and think, Blimey, there's no reference to your shipping threshold. What, what the hell? I mean, it, most people should know the biggest reason for abandoning a checkout is because they're not sure what, what your shipping threshold is or unexpected shipping charge. You've got to tell them up front. So I could list them, Tim, but it'd be a bit boring because anyone could, in five minutes research, could go and find what the biggest five no-nos are on a website. So let's say I go on a website and see that they haven't even put their shipping threshold up front of house. You know that that website doesn't really know what it's doing. So... The biggest e-commerce mistakes would be not knowing the basics before you even start. Knowing too much and getting too into your own product. I remember when I first started, when I first heard of electronic cigarettes, before I had before I had the chance to get into the industry, as an ex-smoker, I was quite tempted because I used to quite fancy a cigarette on a night out and I used to have to sort of fight that urge. And I thought it'd be nice to buy an electronic cigarette because I'd heard they sort of give you that sensation. Of, of smoking. So I thought I'd try and buy one. I went on a, a few websites and every one of them was already at this advanced level of showing me like glass tubes and bottles of stuff. And I was like, well, I don't understand what this is. Leave me alone. Ah, get me out of this website. <laughs> so the, the mistake they were making was that they weren't making these products accessible. So we had a rule for the first two years of our website that there had to be a cigarette looking product on the homepage. As you, as we all know now, e-cigarettes don't always look like cigarettes now. In fact, more often than not, they don't. But in the early days, half of all of them did look like cigarettes. They called them cigarettes. And we had a rule for the first two years that front of front of uh, front page promo had to contain an electronic cigarette that looked like a cigarette or risk my wrath if the uh, <laughs> designers didn't put something that wasn't intimidating on the front of the page. So yeah, the, I think that's a huge weakness sometimes that you you know your industry so well and you assume that people know and, and you sort of intimidate them with all your knowledge of your advanced level website when actually people don't want that. They want to know they want to know exactly what you're selling. Yeah, it's, it's so it's so basic, isn't it? We were doing a seminar in in London the other day and it, we were just putting up websites and on the screen in front of everyone and saying what does this business do? Probably 50% of them people couldn't even tell. <laughs> It's crazy, isn't it? Just it's, it's it's the absolute basics, isn't it? It's most people think you know thinking about like things like split testing different button colors and which images to use and stuff like that. It's like whoa, whoa, let's let's go straight back. Let's imagine your aunt Bessie. Imagine that she doesn't already know the business like you know the business. Just give her what she needs to buy, and then then you can work on the button colors later on. Well, I think that's why sometimes this is another one I feel quite strongly about. People put a phone line on the site or introduce live chat. I'm a big believer that if you need to introduce live chat or a phone line, then you're, that's because your website's failed. So you sh- they're, they're like papering over the cracks. Yes, you could have live chat and a phone line. And yes, people can phone you and get the answers. But you're basically ignoring the fact that the reason they're calling is because they don't understand what you're doing. So you should you should address that problem before you let them call you. I know Amazon, I, I'm a big reader of Amazon books, but there haven't been many written. There's about five or six and I read all of them. And they were big believers that you shouldn't have a phone line on your website because if you do, it means your website's broken. Yeah, it's uh, an admission of failure, isn't it? It is, but there are some industries, by the way, sorry, that should have a phone line because their average order value is so high that you can't afford for them not to call you. You know, if your average order value is a thousand pounds, of course you need a phone line. But I'm saying 
you should think about what I've just said as a concept and work out whether that works for your business. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. We're relatively new with e-commerce. What do you think is going to change in the ne- in the short to medium term, say the next five years? Well, I'm hoping in five years we won't see websites that don't have shipping thresholds front of house, yeah, that sort of stuff. People in five years' time should be a lot more knowledgeable. We're sort of, that would add 50% of the length of the industry in a way. So we, we shouldn't see those really, really poor websites anymore. Even the lower end ones now, I think for about 500 quid to a grand in five years' time, you'll probably get what we call now a very, very high level website. So I think in five mm. years, we'll get a lot more advanced websites. I wonder if in five years' time, it might be that if you can't get your stuff the same day, you, your, your website's in a minority. I think when, when Amazon started going on about drones, everyone's like, oh, no. Does that mean as soon as they launch drones, my website's dead? Because if I can't deliver same day, then Amazon's just going to swallow me up. But actually, I think in five years, there might be, if they're, if they're allowing drone deliveries, this might take 10 years, there'll be drone companies who work for you. It doesn't mean, Amazon won't steal the lead on this one. I think everyone ought to be delivering by drone if it becomes a thing. But I think same day delivery doesn't need drones. It can still involve networks. And I think that same day delivery will probably be the biggest thing that will change. And I, I can't wait till we can offer that. Delivery still feels like one of those things where Amazon still has a massive advantage over pretty much everyone else, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a bit annoying, isn't it? But Amazon don't sell e-cigarettes, so uh, it's all right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Obviously, your you know, ET e- 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 is is uh, is ridiculously successful, and and you've seen some insane growth for people who are right at the start of their journey, maybe thinking of starting an e-commerce business or they've just got it going and they're starting to get some some traffic and starting to get some sales. Talking back to those guys or talking back to the the Pascal in, you know, 2012 or whatever, what do you wish that you'd have known then, which would have really helped you? Uh, my business partner's going through a lot of the stuff I've already been through. So over there in America, he's he 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 still goes through stuff and I'm able to I'm able to sort of stop the panic, tell him why things are happening because I've already been through it. So stuff like it's a bit of an unfair thing to say because it's cheating on the question. But if I'd known that there'd be fluctuation in seasons in sales, uh, if I'd known that at weekends you're going to sales are going to drop because people are just you know out and about doing other stuff, uh, if you could already sort of preempt when stuff's going to go down and 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 not to panic, we we've had our site taken over by pirates who demanded money. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if that happened again. You can stay a lot calmer because actually, can you? We were down for like two days. But with the more experience you get, then the more you know, actually, they haven't got your site. They've just DDoS attacked it. And now I know what a DDoS attack is. They overload your website so that it crashes and then it looks like they've hijacked it, but actually they haven't. They've just overloaded it with data and they can't overload it with data forever because it stops them doing it to someone else. And the longer you don't pay them, the longer they're just wasting their time. And so, you know, you with time, you get you gain the sort of experience where you just, you have to remain, you can remain calm. So maybe the experience... What I wish I'd known then is just stuff I couldn't possibly have known because it just comes with time. Maybe if I were to have my time again, I'd probably invest in more robust software solutions earlier on, like a really, really good stock system that I could grow into. If you set your stall out really big at the beginning, which I did, I always wanted these websites to be huge. I wanted the global domination of vaping online. If you know that's what you want to do, don't set yourself up with some sort of small level software that you know you're going to have to change because changing over software, we've just done it this week in the States as well. It's a nightmare. It's it's so hard to organize, especially the bigger and bigger you get. So yeah, perhaps um, 
solutions that you know are going to need changing at some point. If you already want to be big and you do reach that level, you've sort of you set yourself up for a fall if you haven't already planned for that. Such good advice. Such good advice. Right, final question, then we'll wrap up. Thank you so much, Pascal. I know we've uh, we've run on quite a lot, so thank you, uh, thank you for sticking with us. Who are your role models, and what are the characteristics you most admire in them? Obviously, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Uh, he's just so ahead of his time in e-commerce. He's so bright as well. He's just almost intimidatingly bright. That you, you, I've read a hell of a lot of books. Anything I can find on him, I will watch YouTube videos of him being interviewed. Just try and get in his head. And it's fascinating. Sadly, there's not that much more information than the sort of three or four biographies of him that have been written. Uh, I also love Tony Shea from uh, Zappos. I, I really enjoyed his book and his, his approach to life. Ray Kroc, who's a little bit topical at the moment with this film that's just come out, The Founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote a book called uh, Grinding It Out, which is one of my favourite business books ever. Just basically just ta- teaching you to set lofty goals and not be intimidated by them. Uh, he set incredibly lofty goals. Well, in terms of setting lofty goals, I always think back to Mike Tyson, who is a man I really admire in terms purely for his boxing, I, I might add. Um, <laughs> him and his coach, Gus D'Amato. When his, when I think Tyson didn't really have any parents growing up or he, his father wasn't around. And a guy called Gus D'Amato took him under his wing when they were 12. And they set their goal to be for Tyson to be the youngest world heavyweight champion ever. And this is something they set their minds at when when Tyson was 12 and everything they did was based around this are we going to re- if we do that are we going to reach this goal and people don't realize that Mike Tyson was pretty disciplined or he had his he had his moments but through his teens he really was incredibly goal set he, he set his goal he used to read up on boxers the history of boxing everything to do with boxing he was a real boxing historian and of course he became the world heavyweight champion I think it was at 21 which did reach his goal and I really admire people who set goals and really keep an eye on them Jeff Bezos did the same with the Kindle. I seem to remember in one of the books they mentioned that he said his, to his engineers he wanted to launch an, an ebook that had like a, a month of battery. And the engineers said, well, that's not going to be possible. He said, make it happen. And, and every decision they made was, can we hit our target of an ebook that costs like under $100 and can sell for $199 that has a month's worth of battery? If uh. you set that goal and everything you do is towards that goal. And I just really admire people who set goals and, and, and achieve them. And often if you do set a goal and you think about it constantly about how you're going to reach it, you'd be surprised how often you do hit them. Oh, it's, uh, he, Jeff Bezos can sometimes come across as so unreasonable. And yet the things that he asked for, you'd never bet against him, would you? Like with his whole space adventure, you just, you wouldn't bet against him. You wouldn't want to compete with him. No, but he has got some pretty hot competition in the likes of Elon Musk, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, and I'm sure they'll both do it. Pascal, this has been amazing. Where can people find out more about you, follow you, and of course, check out Electric Tobacconist? On stuff like Twitter, social media, uh, Electric Pascal. Our website's electrictobacconist.co.uk for the UK, obviously, and electrictobacconist.com for the US if you want to buy vaping products over there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Pascal. It's been great. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Tune in next week. Thanks, Tim.